Welcome back for another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is Julie Love. I'm your host. This is our episode 51, and I'm excited to have our guest tonight. Before I introduce my guest, our guest, Elizabeth Kip, I want to introduce my book, which is A Gift from Adversity, the same title as this podcast. A Gift from Adversity was published in 2020, and it's about my life. The subtitle is Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness. I wrote this book to share my adversity, not only that, but how I overcame it and perspectives that I learned from my adversity. At the beginning of this year, I decided to create a platform where people can share their adversities, but not only that, tools that they use to overcome. And also a gift that came from it. So let's introduce our guest tonight. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Jerry. So great to be here. Thank you. Absolutely honored to have you. So, can you tell our audience who you are and what you do, and if you have any social media website? Yes,、um, Elizabeth Kip. I'm a stress management specialist. I'm a trauma-trained and a yoga-informed addiction recovery coach, and、uh, I really specialize in chronic pain. All these other things、uh, fell, feel under it, fall under it.、Um, I do ancestral clearing, and、uh, also I'm a yoga and meditation teacher. You can find me on social media all over the place. Elizabeth Kip Stress Management. I'm pretty much everywhere,、um, like Facebook, the main ones: Facebook, LinkedIn,、uh, Instagram.、Um, YouTube, <laughs> and uh,、um, what was the other question?、Uh, and where are you located? Are、oh, you I'm, yes, I'm in Lawrence, Kansas, which is、um, the actual geographic center of the United States. is right down the road from where I live, <laughs> so we're right in the center of the United States. Wonderful. Well, I am in Massachusetts, and I've never been to Kansas. <laughs> yes. So, how is the weather over there? It's ninety-five degrees right now, and it's our time is seven thirty-five in the evening, and it's ninety-five still. <laughs> wow! So let's actually jump into our main topic, which is the adversity. So, would you please tell our audience what was your adversity? You know, I had a string of incidents,、um, uh, adverse incidents. But I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll point to the main one, which I, I, I kind of like to、um, share、uh, more frequently than the others, because、um, I, I, I was, I, I, I experienced uh, domestic uh, violence and uh, bullying. Um, I just, it, it became so normalized in my, in my, in my family, in my culture that what I didn't, I denied it for years. I didn't even know what it was. I, I just became used to it. However. When I was 14, I、uh, was on a horse,、uh, schooling a horse over fences, a, a kind of a, a new filly, and she made a weird move, and I, I, she threw me. I, I got unseated, and I, I fell on a rock, and、uh, on my back on a rock, and it, and it broke the fifth lumbar in two, front to back, and I got up from that accident.、Uh, I mean, I knew I'd hurt myself, obviously. 
that I was actually able to get up. So I, I didn't realize I'd actually broken anything at the time. Um, and, uh, uh, and it hurt for a couple of weeks, but I was only 14 and I guess we heal fast when we're young. Um, it, it really bothered me for about 14 years. And then it, after 14 years later, the, the, that whole situation became unstable. And the doctors, uh, when they looked at the x-ray, they said, oh, you need surgery because uh, if you're, that front part of the bone was slipping forward in the pelvis and pulling the leg nerves with it. And they were afraid that it was, it was like sitting 80% off the, uh, off the center, right? It was sitting, coming 80% into the pelvis. And uh, they were concerned that it would, that it would uh, come forward and I wouldn't be able to walk right? That it would just, I would, I would lose my ability to walk. So we, we started a series of surgeries. They thought it would just be one, but it ended up being uh, three structural surgeries and a, and a, and a um, corrective surgery afterwards um, of uh, trying to stabilize that, that split, uh, that, that split in the spine. And, um, and I, I ended up with a bunch of hardware in me. It was, it was, it was, there was only one hospital in the world at the time, uh, which was just Toronto general and in Toronto, Canada, uh, that was, that did anything like that. And so it was, it was a real groundbreaking surgery and it worked, but it, I, I ended up being in an awful lot of pain, um, from all those surgeries. And, um, that was the third surgery. There did plenty of pain up to that with the other ones. And I ended up, um, it really, even after the first surgery, I, I, they put me on uh, opiate pain medicine and uh, this thing called a benzodiazepine, which is an anti-anxiety drug. And nowadays it's known as Xanax or Ativan. People, that's a fairly well-known, there's a fairly, Clonopin is another benzo. So it's kind of like that. Um, but I, uh, but they ended up, I just never got relief from my pain. I just, I just, um, I just, yeah. And anyway, I was, I was on that medicine for 32 years and the last 15 of those 32 years, the opiate was fentanyl, uh, which is a uh, hundred times more powerful than uh, morphine. And it's a drug that um, uh, is killing a lot of people now that's on the streets. So I, I didn't, I, I really um, am a little surprised that I am still alive because I was on very high doses of it for a very long time. And um, you know, people were dying. They were dying in their sleep because of overdose. So I, I really kind of feel that I'm, I'm, I'm really here by the grace of God. And that, I see it that way. Some of your listeners may, may not understand that, but that, that's the way I feel. Um, and so that's the adversity that I had. The thing is, is that it, it created this um, condition called chronic pain. And chronic pain is any pain that's felt 15 days out of 30 for three months or more. Any pain physical, emotional, spiritual, financial, any pain that's felt 15 days out of 30 for three months or more is chronic. That's um, the brain can't tell the difference between a broken bone and a broken heart. So it all sends the same signal. It hurts. And why is that important? A couple of things. There's um, the National Institutes of Health before COVID estimated fully uh, 25% of everyone in North America suffered with chronic pain across all socioeconomic measures, including children. And the national, I'm sorry, the World Health Organization pre-COVID uh, estimated a fifth of the world 
is in chronic pain. So it's this, it's this malaise. It's like a silent pandemic in the human population. And uh, people, um, people don't understand that, right? And the other thing is, is why is chronic pain a thing? Because it changes the way the brain perceives the world. Um, it creates um, a, a, a lot of confusion in the brain and a lot of uh, brain fog. People talk about brain fog. And it also creates a pronounced negative bias. So the world is wrong. I'm wrong. What's wrong with me? There's a lot of that that goes on. And, and um, it, becomes this, it becomes this kind of downward cycle of hopelessness. And, and, and you know, you have, you have lived through adversity you were a chronic pain sufferer at some time. You healed from it, but you were in that and you know exactly what I'm talking about. So um, anyway, that was my adversity. And I, I, I finally found a, a, a doctor that, that understood the nature of chronic pain um, that could help me heal it. Up until 32 years into this whole thing, all the doctors said, you will be in level seven out of 10 pain 24 seven for the rest of your life. You will be in a wheelchair when you're 40. And they, they, they said, you have, to, this is the best we've got opiates and, and benzodiazepines that you have to learn to live with it. Now that was a misunderstanding. They were doing the best that they could with the model they were working under, but their assumption there is really important. They assumed I wasn't going to heal. And see, they made that assumption. And we always have to check our assumptions about when we make statements. What's the assumption underlying that, right? Well, they made the assumption that I wasn't going to heal. And that, to me, that tells me more about the limitation of the model they're working under than the, than the human body's ability to heal. So I finally found a doctor who was actually able to uh, understood the nature of chronic pain and... Uh, and I went into his pain management program. He helped me get off all the medication. And I walked in there with over 40 years of chronic pain. And I walked out 52 days later with no pain. So let's save the tools and then how you overcame it for later question. Yeah. Let's focus on adversity a little bit more. Yeah. So I want okay. to a little bit more of your domestic violence part. I know you had this injury that led to, but like, what was your domestic violence like? Well, it's important that you bring that in because the, the question really is, why did my back heal? What, what was keeping that from healing, right? And part of that was the emotional load that I felt because of the uh, domestic violence that I had experienced. Um, I uh, First of all, I started out life with um, being separated from my mother at birth. She went into a deep depression and I was separated from her. She, she went away for nine months and they kind of handed me over to like, you know, a nurse or whatever. So that was, uh, that's, that's a huge trauma for, for mother and child. So th there was that. Um, she was also bipolar. Uh, she had suffered from bipolar disorder, which, which wasn't, uh, wasn't actually a diagnosis at that point. Uh, she, nobody knew what that was. Her behavior was really considered eccentric. So she didn't get any help. And so it became very difficult um, to kind of predict from, from during the day, like whether she would get angry or whether she would be okay. And so it was, I just never knew, I never knew when I was going to, I just never felt safe in the house. I just never knew, at least if she was in the house, I just didn't, 
because I couldn't predict her behavior. The only pattern there was that there was no pattern. So that creates a lot of, you know, worry and concern in the, in, in the nervous system. So there was that. Um, and then uh, when I was 15, um, she had, uh, she had been ill and she was, she, she used alcohol to, to deal with her um, kind of with her problems. She used alcohol and, and I didn't realize that she was an alcoholic at the time because she would only drink at, at five o'clock and after in the evening. So it didn't, that was like social drinking. Um, anyway, she took antibiotics one day and, uh, and also was drinking. And that's a really dangerous uh, combination. Um, she went into a psychotic, um, manic, um, uh, violent uh, state and rushed me with a knife and put it right up against my neck and threatened me, um, which was terrifying. And I'm not actually sure why she stopped other than I think grace came through. I, I really felt like it was the strangest thing, Jerry, because I was standing there and I, I was up against the counter and I, I didn't have anywhere to go. And she's right there. And, and I, I had nowhere to go and I, I just surrendered. And, and I, and I felt this I know it's going to sound strange. I felt this energy come right through my head and right out my hands. And I swear to God, that energy pushed her back. And she turned around and walked away and collapsed in a corner, uh, passed out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know that sounds kind of wild, but I have a science background. I, I don't really understand these things, but I, I, I look through a science lens. And when something like that happens, I'm like, what was that? Right. But I felt, I mean, I look at it now and I feel like that was grace just coming through and kind of protecting both of us. So was the perpetrator your mom only or other people as well for domestic violence or just your mom? Well, that's a hard question. Um, I would say it's ancestral. I would say it's, now I'm an ancestral clearing practitioner, so I, I see things through an ancestral lens. She, as a baby, as a, as a, as a, as a, you know, in a high chair, saw her father try and kill her mother. So I, I, you know, you're asking a very interesting question, and I can't actually. Uh, now it didn't happen. He he didn't kill her, but it was like again, it was this almost thing. So I can't really answer that question. Who was the perpetrator there? I'm not sure. So my case, my perpetrator was my father, who was you know, um, sexually, physically, emotionally, probably very abusive, and I escaped from him. Mm. But also two uncles who were sexually abusive, but they were not physically abusive. Mm. Um, so it was just the family affair of rotation of sexual abuse and physical and then emotional a lot of stuff. And then later on, like bullying at school and companies and all that stuff. But domestic violence is really something that um, people are afraid to talk about. And then people are, especially if the perpetrator is your family member, and then when you're young, especially. Mm -hmm. you have, and then in my generation, I was born 76, and then I was raised in rural Japan, where obviously back then there was no Me Too movement. There is no 
worse to abuse. I never heard of PTSD, depression, nothing like that growing up. Mm-hmm. How was it like for you? There was, was there any advocacy service, mental health help mm-hmm. when you were 14, 15, when you're going through this crazy um, household that you had experienced? No, it was very similar to you. And and but the other thing, other element of it was that um, you know, like I told my father, and I and 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 what happened in my family was they just swept the whole thing under the rug and pretended it never happened. And that was a pattern in the family where there was just denial, 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 denial was the pattern to the point where I began to question whether it even happened, right? Whether my insanity was, I mean, you can imagine. And, and, um, and what was interesting uh, later, I, I realized how much that pattern of denial affected me in terms of understanding how, uh, how things really were. I, I just never realized how, um, how violent things were and how, I mean, we had, I had food in my belly and I had a roof over my head and I had a good education and I had nice clothes to wear. Right. But I, I had this dark stuff and I, and I, and I, and I feel like, um, I feel like that was kind of that, that, that denial piece was just made, just put more pressure on all of it. And all of us ended up, you know, being victims of of uh, of of the of the of the violence um, because of the denial, right? So the denial, so that so that there were various people that were perpetrators, but you know what? The denial became a perpetrator too. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And I sympathize and empathize with you. And I'm very sorry that happened to you for your childhood. I'm sorry there was nobody to advocate for you. And I'm a huge advocate for domestic violence and sexual abuse now as a journalist, as a filmmaker, as an actress, and then doing the podcast as well. And it's so sad that people just don't understand the level of layers of trauma. So and then the magnitude of not only the incident itself, but the second and third and fourth shock waves that you experience as a survivor or victim. My case was nobody believed me, including my mom. And then that led me to suicide attempt because, you know, I mean, I think if I was there, if I was with the knowledge that I have now, and then if I was there for my younger self, I could definitely handle things differently. Mm-hmm. But in a way, like in Japan, very, very recently, Me Too movement started. Very recently. And I'm talking about 2022. Oh, wow. Wow. So mm-hmm. Domestic violence and sexual abuse, incest, those are the things that a very very taboo in our culture and i don't know what it was like in america but i feel like this mental health talk and then you know domestic violence sexual abuse that were hidden denied Mm -hmm. that is definitely changing nowadays especially after the pandemic but also you know growing up in that situation elizabeth 
I know you mentioned that it affected you and then to the point that all that incident, you started to think that maybe it didn't happen. Mm. But like for your adolescence and, you know, maybe early young, like early adulthood, like how were you? Like, do you remember the feeling like of what's going on with me? Like, you know, do you remember any of those, those like depression or anything? Oh, well, I, I, I do remember it's, it's kind of interesting because I, I, I've studied trauma and I was reading Bessel van der Kolk's book, uh, when the body, the body keeps the score. And, um, and I, and I, and I read that he was like, well, we get very, conf the, the brain, we get very, con our memory gets confused in, in, in trauma. And I'm, I like put my hand up going, no, <laughs> I, I was not confused like that situation imprinted on my brain that scene uh with my mom in the kitchen with the knife that's imprinted on my it's like burned into my memory now what's interesting because he's accurate but in this part at this part this is where i disagree with him and, and i'd have to have a conversation with him to find out you know this this uh nuance what happened after i don't remember I remember getting home to my, driving home to my, I, mean, I remember somehow I managed to get through the night and got up the next morning and, and, and uh, drove uh, 50 miles in a car in traffic, you know, like not really together and safely somehow uh, to, to my father's house. And I, and I remember talking to my dad and he kind of just like blew the whole thing. He talked to my mom, but blew the whole thing off. And, uh, and I went up to my room and, and I stayed by myself for the whole weekend. And I, I, I was, I was, I was, um, I was, I was just kind of like dissociated, but I do remember, and this is going to sound weird to people, but it's what I did. I remember sitting on my bed. I was a queen size bed kind of on the floor. And I remember taking out different parts of my brain, of my mind and putting them on the bed and looking at this part and that part and this part and that part. And I didn't realize, you know, there's this Richard Schwartz does work now or trauma work. His, his stuff is called internal family systems and it's parts work. And I was doing parts work back in like, what was that 1972? <laughs> I was doing parts work on myself. I just didn't know it, but it was, that's how I, I was my own therapist because we didn't have anything. I didn't have any, I didn't have support. The support was don't talk about it. It never happened. So like I was left to my own devices. Again, I feel like Grace was just there holding me, um, keeping me relatively sane. So I, you know, it was, it was, an, it was, it was hard. It was hard. I smoked a lot of pot back then, marijuana. I started smoking pot and then that helped because I was, you know, I became kind of ADD. I, I just like my, my mind, I couldn't, my mind was just all over the place and, and the marijuana tended to calm that. So I was able to focus better for school and stuff, but I didn't do that for too many years, but I, I did that for a while and it, it really helped center me. And it turns out that marijuana is actually very good for ADD when the mind can't focus. It's, it's good for that. So again, I, I just, I felt like I was kind of, I was guided by 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 my environment somehow by 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 grace that that helped me 
Does that make sense? Yes. Well, thank you so much. And then this is a live interview. If any of the audience have any questions for Elizabeth and I, please um, type on the comment section and then we will answer it as the interview continues. So let's actually shift um, to my to second question, which is the tools that you use to overcome. And first of all, thank you very much for being on a gift from university and sharing your story. And my really goal is to normalize this difficult conversation that people can learn and share and feel okay and they're not alone. Now, the tools part that um, I've interviewed 50 guests so far from all over the world. And this is my favorite part because a lot of people assume that, oh, get a counselor and you'll be okay. But it's not like that, especially when you go through extreme adversity. And this part of the question has been helping me a lot because I've actually used some of the tools that my guests um, used to overcome the adversity, not the traditional way of people saying, oh, you go get a counselor. So Elizabeth, um, you kind of mentioned a little bit about doctor and then maybe a little bit marijuana and stuff, but what are the tools that you felt that worked the best for your situation to overcome? Well, I, 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 you know, given that it was, I was a teenager and I, and I, it was kind of, I, I had to deal with, I had to learn to get on with life. Um, you know what I did? I, I put myself around other people my age that seemed to be fairly even, that weren't, that weren't, that didn't, you know, fight with one another and stuff. Um, I, I just I, I had to find that because I was just used to I was just used to all this um, fighting and and I and I um, so that was part of what I did as a child as a, as a as a late teen I found people that now it turned out in America at that point that was you know I was kind of a flower child if you know what that is that was because it was like the, it was like the 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 first part of this seventies uh, late sixties early seventies. Um, and so there was, a there was a lot of marijuana going around uh, in the United States, illegal, but we, you know, it was, it was going around, but you know, it was interesting because that crowd was, was much more mild and even tempered than, you know, what I grew up with, which were, were their, 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 uh, their way of calming down was alcohol and that didn't work well. So <laughs> there, I mean, there was beer drinking around, which is alcohol, obviously, but the, the, it was a much milder crowd. So um, now I end up I ended up being allergic to marijuana, and I can't take it. And I, I'm not an advocate for it one way or the other, other than to say that we have found research has shown us that that it's good for um, attention deficit disorder. So uh, that ADD thing. Um, uh, other than that, I, I'm 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 not really an advocate one way or the other for it. Oh, and the pharmaceutical, just for the listening audience, the pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical, or sorry, the, the psychological um, pharma, pharma, pharmacology isn't well known for uh, marijuana. So it, it, it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily safe for people. That's, that, would be my, that would be my take on it. So, you, you know, you want, medical, you want medical help with that, medical direction on that. Anyway, I have to be responsible and say that. So community, 
that's 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 kind of even. <laughs> it's got some stability to it, right? And um, and I also um, I was in school at the time, and I dove into my studies. So in that space, again, I wasn't. I, nobody was hassling me. It was just here's the work. This is your homework. Go do it. I did it. Um, I happened to be in a school where the, where, where the, the teachers weren't mean and bullying, um, and I kind of isolated myself from uh, the students that were that were difficult. I just stayed away. I mean, I just like why would I want to be around that energy? So um, that's what I did in the first. That's what I did, and that's what I that that's pretty much what I did. Uh, it wasn't until you know probably where am I like eight years ago that I got with a somebody to help me actually work through that. I just, I just got by on, on my wits. And then what and was that eight years ago? What happened? Yeah. Well, I, I went through, um, as I said, I, uh, uh, in September of 2013, I went through a pain management program and he, and he was, a um, he was, uh, he understood chronic pain, a lot, but he also understood adversity and he was a psychiatrist as well as all these other things. And, um, he helped me process that. He helped me process that. So he was, he was helpful in that. It wasn't the only thing I had. I also did ancestral clearing, which is why I'm an ancestral clearing practitioner now, because it was so helpful. So a lot of the stuff that I was carrying had this ancestral component. So there was, you know, violence in the family you know, and I, and I was carrying that. So uh, the ancestor clearing process helped. Uh, and I, te- I, I do ancestor clearing uh, around the world. I've been doing it for uh, about eight and a half years now, um, somewhere on the planet every day. It's because it's, it's, it's easy to do it online or on the phone or in person. It doesn't really matter. But it, it helps to clear the burden of intergenerational trauma. That is interesting. I've never heard of it. Yeah, I'd be glad to. I'd be glad to take you through a session sometime. Yeah, interesting. So, mm-hmm. you earlier on when the trauma is maybe happening and you didn't have enough vocabulary or logics, mm-hmm. what was going on, that you kind of felt the energetic field of people who are more balanced than imbalanced mm-hmm. and then try to stick with those energy rather than dramatic and then turbulence. Yeah. And I did my own inner work to the extent that I could. I, I did a lot of kind of, Oh, I feel this war inside of me. How do I, and I could feel the different parts at kind of, you know, having a conversation. So I would, I would, I would kind of take them out and put them on the, and the, you know, in front of me and, and, and kind of, look at each one and then put them back in. And, and, and that was a way that I was able to keep myself, make, find some peace uh, within on the inside. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it was my version of therapy having had no training at all. <laughs> Very interesting. And I just want to touch base with assumption that you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. when you were talking about, the surgery and the chronic pain. And I just want to share with you and our audience, I had thyroid disease that I've been suffering with. And then later on, I realized it was coming from when I became Reiki pr- practitioner, mm-hmm. I learned about chakra where mm-hmm. this is 
the advocacy where I was shut off about my abilities and stuff and that restored psychosomatic pain and um, I think um, distraction of my organ, which is the thyroid. And I had a surgery when I was 20 and then went hyper to surgery to hypo later on. And, you know, one time the doctor said, you have to be on medication for the rest of your life. And I said, no, I am not going to be your customer. I completely denied. And I wrote it on my book, A Gift from Adversity, about how how I dealt with that Mm. assumption of Western medicine. Mm -hmm. And basically I said, I'm going to switch to doctors. Thank you. So... A lot of people do not understand, especially in Japan, we have this power trip of doctors and a loyalty. Like, you know, when you learn piano, you should stick with one teacher. However, that teacher may be a little bit abusive or too much or doctor's case as well. We don't really think about the choices. But in America, I learned that you have choices a lot more in a way that it's almost like shopping around the restaurant, attorney or counselor or like doctors. Then I said to the doctor, no, I'm going to find somebody that can fit me more. Then I actually found nutrition response in testing where they cleansed all my dieting. And then my mm-hmm. TSA level from 16 went down to four without taking any kind of medication. Mm. Amazing. So do you, have you ever experienced that? Like you kind of mentioned about doctor assuming that you will never heal, but some perspective that is wrong. I'm not sure what the question is. Yes, I've heard of it. <laughs> and, no, no. Uh, experience, you told me earlier about mm-hmm. like in the process, the doctor assumed that you're never going to heal. Yeah, they all did. On a 40. So then um, internally, like, you know, have you ever have doubt for those doctors who made an assumption that you never oh, heal? Yeah, I, I, uh, uh, they all they all said it until the one I told Dr. Peter Prescott, uh, who wrote a book, by the way, he passed away a few years ago. He wrote this book, Conquer Chronic Pain, an innovative mind body approach. And uh, it's a great book. And it's it's uh, I wrote mine to kind of back it up. I helped him write the exercises at the back of the book. And then this is the patient version of that. The way through chronic pain tools to reclaim your healing power. So this is kind of a nice set. Um Anyway, uh, it talks about the tools. Um, Peter, Dr. Peter Prescott talks about chronic pain from a researcher point. He was a researcher, scientist. And I talk about kind of my personal experience in using the tools. Um, um, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> I'm sorry. I got off on that. Well, we're talking about tools. And yeah. then when doctor says completely. Oh, like, you know, okay, you're never going to heal. Yeah. You, you're done. Yeah. Like, you can't walk. You know, yeah. You- overcome yeah. injury. What are the tools do, that you use to... Yeah, so I, I, I had science background, so I, I kind of understood they're working in a scientific framework, which is self-limiting by, by definition, right? Uh, science can only comment on what it can observe, measure, and describe. Anything outside of that, it can't comment on. But where do we live? We live in the all it is. We live in the whole field not just the part that science can measure. And that's where we heal. So when they first said this to me, I was like, God, my life is over kind of thing. 
but I within it took me a little bit. It took me a couple of weeks to like get over the, the prognosis he gave me. But I realized that he'd made an error uh, because he was commenting on this limited thing, and uh, and that he he was he was telling me this is the way it was going to be. He wasn't saying it was probable that. He said you will. And science is all about probabilities. It's not about facts. It's about probabilities. So that was an error. Uh, and they 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 can. And so it's all about. He should have said. Um, you know, he should have been honest and said, we don't know. This is our best shot. But they didn't do that. There was a, this ego, right, that you talk about. The thing is, is that I looked in all around, all, all everywhere I could find. I looked in England. I looked in Canada. I looked in the United States and people that I had some, I had some acupunctures that came from China. Um, I've, I've worked with people from, uh, from uh, Japan. So I, I, I had a lot of people and the acupuncturists were amazing. They were really helpful. Oh my God, the, the acupuncture was amazing. But, uh, but it didn't heal the chronic pain. It just brought the pain down, which was great. And I, and I love that. Um, so all the doctors except Dr. Peter Prescott said this. So it wasn't like I could shop around. They all said the same thing because they were all sitting in this model and their perspective was limited. I understood that healing happens everywhere, not just in this framework. So I knew I had to look beyond this science uh, space for my answers. And that's what I did. I looked, I mean, you know, I had Reiki practitioners, I had a massage therapist and I did yoga and I did meditation and, uh, you know, da, 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 a whole bunch of things. Right. So um, I understood that there was a limit. And so now when I sit, when that's something, you know, when I have to sit in front of a healer, I look to my, I look at this person and I ask, what is their perspective? Right. What can they offer me and where are they limit? Because everybody's limited. Everybody's got a limit and a perspective. And so I'm very clear when I sit in front of a Western doctor, what their limit is. Right. And if anybody wants to put me on a medication, I'm going to ask them first, what's the exit plan? Don't put me on it until you know how you're going to get me off it. I mean, that's one of the things. I mean, there's lots of other questions I ask too, but I think that's really important. And when we're talking about opiates and benzodiazepines, they're, they're, they're quick to put you on them, but you, you have to know what the exit plan is before you start taking them, if that makes sense. Yes. Elizabeth, I can't thank you enough for talking about this. It's very important to me because a lot of people who don't understand Eastern medicine, like such as acupuncture, yoga, or medication. And then like what you said, it's just one model that people think that this is great. I so respect the Western medicine and then um, the way that people can heal, but also I respect Eastern medicine and the perspective. And then I think we as a whole should have open mind, should have open mind to explore the options that you had mentioned and I had explored. For instance, I just had a surgery on Thursday and then there was, if I didn't know the difference between general anesthesia and then sedation, they would just go through anesthesia 
And I said, no, General Anastasia has some side effects such as losing brain cells or chances of, you know, maybe affecting your mouth and then throat with the tubes and then, you know, longer recovery. So I asked for sedation and then they said, it's okay. My procedure was um, short enough that I, they can use different medication, which is less stronger than the general mm -hmm. anesthesia. And then I think, you know, self-advocacy in the medical field is not talked about. And then people don't know that we do have choices. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I really appreciate you bringing these perspectives and then how you advocate it for yourself and how you're asking what's the exit plan for this mm -hmm. medication, which people do not ask. So I think it's very important and I appreciate you so much. Now I have one question from live audience. Awesome. Uh, his name is Brian. His name, uh, he said, what does it mean to blissfully bloom? When do you feel closest to it? Do you have an answer? When does it mean to blissfully bloom? And when do you feel closest to it? Well, that's a very interesting question. And I, because I, it would be nice to ask him another question about it, but I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what I think he means. <laughs> um, so when I blissfully bloom is when I'm actually in meditation and I experience my existence in the unified field of consciousness. Because there's no, the boundary of, of, of where my body starts and stops, it disappears. And I'm just in the field. There's no boundary between me and it. There's no separation. That to me, that's blissfully blooming. I, I hope that made sense. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much for answering that. I really appreciate it. So let's move on to our last question, which is a gift that came from the adversity. So oh. what do you say a gift that came from your adversity? Um, you know, I think the gift that came because my my heart hardened. My heart kind of got armored up and broke and you know, all these things happened. And and um, and ultimately the, the gift was, and I, and I had such a fierce inner critic. I, I just was so down on myself. I was just relentless, the war. Um, and so the, the, the real gift, um, uh, besides the fact that I can sit across from anybody in chronic pain now and, 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 and relate to them and they can relate to me and that's a beautiful gift, but is, is that my, my heart, I, I've softened and I'm gentle and I, and I, and I have compassion and I, I, uh, and, and I don't just have it for others. I have it for myself, which was a long journey to get there. So I, I just think, you know, if, if I can be the change I want to see in the world, then I've done my job as, you know, as, as Elizabeth on the planet Earth at this time, if that makes sense. Well, thank you so much for the beautiful answer to that. My very last word from you that I request is if you see somebody who's going through what you went through, your adversity, what kind of advice do you give? Well, the advice is the greatest healer in your life lives within. The intelligence, the body knows how to heal doctors 
and all the medical community, they can set a bone and stitch up a wound, but they can't tell the body how to heal. So we have to believe more in the body's ability to heal than in on the than in the disease or the illness that we're that we're experiencing. I truly appreciate that. And it really touched me. So thank you so much for sharing your time with me and then with our audience. And I just want to emphasize our audience that I started this podcast hoping that we can normalize the conversation around adversity, but not only that, to learn the tools that we can overcome the adversity so we don't have to waste our time on this earth being depressed and being sad, but move forward and know that you are not alone. So thank you, Elizabeth, for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Jerry. So, so great to be here. I appreciate it. Absolutely. See you next time, everyone. And thank you for tuning in.